African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. This is a very significant historical election. This crisis is still damaging, especially Finnish and European economies very hardly, and that's an important reason to get more and more co- cooperation. And uh, what we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of uh, Tiwonge and uh, Stephen, and also we see Malawi violating its international commitments. Well, the position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting for marine species in particular. African Dialogue, a talk show where we cover anything and everything. Very good morning and welcome to African Dialogue here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Zico Namiso and time has just gone one minute after 11 Central African time here on African Dialogue. We are currently on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. Now today in the show we have a very interesting show for you. If you'll remember not too long ago we were speaking about African literature. Well, today on the show we're actually going to be discussing around the second Africa Century International African Writers Conference, which kickstarts this morning at Museum Africa in Newtown, Johannesburg, here in South Africa. So, discussions should get really interesting, of course, taking a look back at some of the discussions that we had around literature and, of course, authors and writings in the continent. But before we get into that, let's get an update from the news desk with Anne Musa. In the headlines, chemical weapons watchdog verifies previously inaccessible Syrian sites. Swiss forensic experts to discuss findings on Yasser Arafat case. And Liberia bans motorcycle taxis from main roads in response to a wave of fatal accidents. Good morning. Global chemical weapons watchdog inspectors using footage from sealed cameras have verified one of the two remaining sites previously inaccessible in Syria. The Organization for the Provision of Chemical Weapons, the OPCW, has already verified 21 out of 23 sites declared to the agency last month. Two sites were considered too dangerous to reach. Meanwhile, Syrians affected by the conflict will be getting life-saving food assistance following China's recent contribution of $2 million towards the World Food Program's Emergency Food Assistance Program. The program currently supports 4 million conflict-affected people inside Syria. Jocelyn Sambira has more. The food will be delivered to 1.2 million internally displaced Syrians, fulfilling their food needs for a period of one month. One of the biggest challenges the agency faces, its country director in Syria said, is raising sufficient funds to purchase the food in advance. Matthew Hollingworth said WFP was extremely grateful for China's generous contribution. The Syria response is WFP's largest and most complex emergency worldwide. 
Deadly clashes between Salafi militants and Houthi fighters in Yemen continues despite calls for a ceasefire. The violence continued for a second week in the town of Damage in the northern province of Saada. The clashes fled up on Monday after a ceasefire was announced by the UN Special Envoy to Yemen, Jamal Benamor, to allow the evacuation of the injured people. The two groups have accused each other of having violated the ceasefire. Swiss scientists who conducted tests on the remains of Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat, whose widow Suha says he was poisoned by radioactive polonium, will address the media later today on their findings. A team of experts opened Arafat's grave in the West Bank city of Ramallah last November and took samples from his body to seek evidence of alleged poisoning. Arafat's wife, Suha, who has given a copy of results, says the results have proved conclusively that Arafat had been poisoned. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, once former Foreign Minister Avigdor Lieberman, who has just been acquitted of corruption charges back in his government. Lieberman, who is a vowed right-winger and lives in an illegal Israeli settlement in the Palestinian West Bank. He doesn't believe in negotiations with the Palestinians. Lieberman's rejoining of the Israeli government could further derail Israeli-Palestinian peace talks. Malfrigberg reports. Although Israeli judges dismissed corruption charges against Israel's former foreign minister, Avigdor Lieberman, they made it clear his behavior was immoral and he wasn't fit to be in government. However, Netanyahu wants him back in government, again as foreign minister, and the Israeli Knesset or parliament is to hold a vote to that effect as early as Sunday. In return for Lieberman's undivided loyalty in his fractious coalition government, Netanyahu has offered him any post he wants. His re-entry into the Knesset or Israeli parliament will further damage the already moribund peace negotiations, as Lieberman has repeatedly dismissed the Palestinian Authority. And finally, Liberia has blocked motorcycle taxis from main roads in response to a wave of fatal accidents. The ban in the capital, Monrovia, has sparked an outcry from drivers and frustrated commuters who are forced to walk. The bikes are the most common form of public transportation in Monrovia besides sheer taxis. Many of the drivers are ex-combatants who fought in the country's brutal 14-year civil war that ended in 2003. Drivers caught on main roads will have their bikes confiscated and be fined $20. Recapping the top stories, chemical weapons watchdog verifies previously inaccessible Syrian sites. Swiss forensic experts to discuss findings on the Yasser Arafat case and Liberia bans motorcycle taxis from main roads in response to a wave of fatal accidents. And that's the news. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 
Well, welcome back to African Dialogue here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. That news update there from Anne Musa, bringing the time to seven minutes after 11 here on Channel Africa. My name is Zikon Amiso. You and I are doing this until the top of the hour. And it is, of course, the last installment of the week of African Dialogue because we do come to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. Now, as always, you're more than welcome to interact with us here on this show. In fact, we encourage it if anything you can find us on facebook tweet us at channel africa one using the hashtag african dialogue or you can simply sms your views and your comments to plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five that's plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five the Africa Century International African Writers Conference, quite a mouthful, has generated tremendous interest from authors, literary scholars and historians alike, this as well as the public. Now, it's being held over three days uh, in Johannesburg here in South Africa. In the same light, the South African Literary Awards will be represented, or rather presented, to the winners at the conference on Saturday. The conference marks the 22nd anniversary of African Writers Day today which was declared by the Organization of African Unity, now known, of course, as the African Union. Now, to unpack around this event and, of course, the significance thereof for the continent and, of course, it being held here in South Africa, the meaning behind that and what we can look forward to uh, gaining from this particular conference, we are joined now on the line by Lisa Combrink, who's the Chief Director of Communications at the Department of Arts and Culture here in South Africa. Lisa, good morning and thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Lisa, can we talk about this conference? Earlier here on African Dialogue, our very loyal listeners, you were constantly in dialogue with us and engaging with us. Not too long ago, we actually had um, a show where we focused on uh, on books and there being enough authors on the continent, writers and alike, whether um, the people of the continent are supporting uh, uh, or literature rather from abroad as opposed to uh, stuff that's coming from the continent in itself. Now, tell us about this specific conference because I think maybe it might be able to answer some of these questions that were, uh, were pressing at that time. Lisa, over to you. Thank you very much. Well, this conference initially, I suppose in a very narrow sense, mm. focuses on the land question. Um, it takes as its starting point um, the 1913 Native Land Act in South Africa, which really dispossessed the African majority of land. Um, so it uses that as its focal point, but it also uses the focal point that this year, is the 50th anniversary of the formation of the OAU, now the African Union, and therefore also looks at related themes, such as the notion of the African Renaissance. Well, those are just some of uh, the things that this conference particularly focuses on, as, of course, Lisa Combrink there alludes to. She's the Chief Director of Communications at the Department of Arts and Culture here in South Africa. Now, Lisa, when you talk about, I mean, uh, uh, things such as the Land Act and, and whatnot, we do know that this conference does boast quite a wide um, uh, uh, participation of authors, literary scholars and historians alike. Now, Touching on these particular focus areas which you have touched on, what sort of contribution are you expecting from these guests? 
Well, we're expecting a whole range of contributions. We have all, we have academics speaking. We have writers discussing their work. We have the Commissioner for Social Affairs at the African Union Commission speaking about the importance of International African Writers Day. We have poets, we have storytellers, we have a focus both on history and on literature. We have a roundtable discussion, for instance, on Pan-African letters, the question of land and agrarian reform. Mm. We have focuses on books themselves that have dealt with dispossession. Mm. Um, And we have a very interesting today um, discussion um, on the native press Mm -hmm. and the whole history of popular press um, in African countries, in South Africa, um, which really tried to subvert colonialism um, probably about a century ago. Um, We also focus on political writing. Um, One of the topics that comes under discussion is the recent um, really published biography about um, Halema Motlante. Mm-hmm. So you can see it's a whole different focus areas. One of the sessions deals with a women's market um, revolt um, in Nigeria, you know, in 1914. Mm. So you really have an interplay here of history, of literature, of culture, um, of the past and what we can learn from them. And also the year and now with very strong participation by young and aspiring writers. Now, it does indeed sound like there is quite something for everybody. I mean, you just mentioned that uh, there's a range of discussions that will be uh, taking place there at that particular conference. Now, um, uh, Lisa, when we talk about, I mean, a conference of this caliber where you have um, participation from really um, the continent at large, I mean, how important is it that um, we we hold uh, such conferences to discuss these issues that affect all of us, not just on the continent, but are also global issues at large? Um, I think it is really, really important. And it's also important because of the way the African content is looked at. Um, you know, Africa is seen as a place more of war, fighting, mm-hmm. and of activism, but not a place of intellectual engagement. Mm-hmm. Africa is often viewed as a kind of experiment where others from other countries can look at us um, as practical examples of whatever their theories are. What this conference does, the beauty of it, is that it really brings intellectuals together uh, um, to look at what is happening on the continent, and I suppose in a way also to offer solutions, to look at, to look at the way forward, to look at um, the successes, and perhaps not the successes, perhaps also to critique the, the notions of African Renaissance. So I think that's what is important is to provide that space for engagement, the space for dialogue, but also to do it on the African continent. So much that happens about African literature happens elsewhere, but not here, right at home. So the fact that Africans are discussing among themselves on African soil, mm-hmm. I think is a, it, it really makes an interesting way forward. And also there have been lots of sort of events Mm -hmm. um, looking at, for instance, the 1930 Native Land Act, Mm -hmm. um, 
and and it's it and it is time that the land question speaks to also other issues issues of identity nationalism culture gender you know questions of belonging questions of power and that we look back at that past but also look at the past with a view to making the present and the future better well, Lisa, you've really quite given us quite a nice background as to exactly what we can be expecting, I mean, at this conference and, of course, highlighting some of the important issues as to why, as the continent, we should be having such dialogue. At this moment, I'd also like to um, acknowledge Jay Copland-Rose, who is also joining us on the line. Jay is from Wilford Earl University in Canada. Good morning, Jay, and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Well, we are talking about uh, this, the, this conference, the Africa Century International African Writers Conference. It's quite a mouthful, I keep saying. I'm almost getting yeah. my tongue twisted around it as I talk about it. And I mean, uh, we've got Lisa Combrink on the line. She's the Chief Director of Communications at the Department of Arts and Culture here in South Africa. And I mean, she's just been highlighting the importance of Africans really coming together and really on African soil, talking about some of these issues that are plaguing um, the various industries as she's mentioned and particularly um, of course the the writing and, and, and that sort of things, the importance of books and the various dialogue that uh, takes place at this three day conference. Can you tell us about your expectations or the, the conference at large? I'm a fifth year PhD candidate out of a university in Canada and uh, for myself my interest in this particular conference is to exchange ideas. Um, I'm doing a lot of research on uh, the international connection between South Africa and other nations. So, um, obviously, during apartheid, there was a large population of people that were um, living in exile, producing literary works, publications, writing um, in an uh, exilic sense. And uh, I guess a lot of my work is, is tracing those passages both back to South Africa. Uh, some people did return, but also many lived abroad and continue to live abroad as part of the diaspora. And I'm looking at how these notions of identity and relationship to the homeland still exist and, uh, and ties are, are maintained through literary publications and writing. Now, you've touched on a very interesting issue of identity there, Jay. And I mean, earlier on, it's almost like you were listening in on our conversation even before you joined us because Lisa was talking about Africa often being known as the place for uh, war and for trouble, you know, poverty and, and, and those kind of things are not really a ground for a fertile ground for intellectual engagement or, or transference of, 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 of um, intellect, you know, amongst uh, the people. Now, for somebody who is there at the, at the conference, you know, you would know that there is this stigma or, or rather perception that is out there on Africa. What's it like to actually be in a setup like that where it is, where the, the fertile, the, the ground rather, is fertile for the intellectual engagement like Lisa was talking about earlier? I think for myself and my own research, the most beautiful thing about working in South Africa uh, as opposed to working internationally mm. is that uh, this nation has an absolutely beautiful collection of academics, writers, um, theorists, creative, uh, I mean, even sculptors, artists. Um, and everyone is willing to talk about their work, right? They're, they're willing to sit down mm. and meet people that they, they don't have any direct connection to. Um, and in my own instance, doing interviews, I've, I've interviewed, you know, 12, 13 people since being here. Um, and as a graduate student, I can't afford to, mm. to repay them in any way, shape, or form. It's just out of the kindness of their hearts, I think, mm. there's, there's a big interest in facilitating academic discussions about South Africa. Oh. Um, mm. Yeah. 
Okay, that is Jay Copland Rose uh, from Wilford All University in Canada, also participating in this conference, just telling us his interest around it and, of course, the various um, uh, wise words that he's getting from the wealth of uh, knowledge that is there at that specific conference, which has, of course, kickstarted today and will go on for the next three days. Now, Lisa, earlier we were talking about um, the that the, uh, during this, this time, these three days, there will also be the South African Literary Awards will be presented to winners. Um, this will be on Saturday. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yes, I can. Um, the, the South African Literary Awards is, you know, su- supported as well by the Department of Arts and Culture. And this will take place on Saturday um, at Museum Africa in Newtown. Um, now, you've got to look at these awards also in the context of, that it takes place in the eve of our 20 years of freedom and democracy and the fact that writers have also played a huge role in taking us to this point in time. Um, the awards recognize various forms of literature written in all South Africa's official languages. The first awards were held in 2005. And the awards include the first-time published author, the Nadine, short sto- Nadine Gordim, a short story award, which I think takes on a special um, mention this year, because on the 18th of November, Nadine Gordimer, who currently is our only um, Nobel Prize um, literary laureate, um, turns 90 years old. So that would be very interesting, mm-hmm. as well as the um, Celo Deca Memorial Literary Award, the Literary Translators Award. Mm-hmm. And it's not just restricted to literature. There's also a journalist award. There's also a posthumous literary award mm-hmm. and a lifetime award. Now, Lisa, then, mm-hmm. yes. now, now this is just the, the South African part of things. I mean, here on African Dialogue, we broadcast to the continent broadly, and we've got listeners from, from various places on the continent. Now, I just want I want to ask, I mean, in terms of these literary awards that you have here in South Africa, do we have similar things elsewhere on the continent? And if not, how can we, how can um, the rest of the continent maybe learn uh, from this uh, South African model of actually doing things and putting a focus of, of some sort on uh, the, 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 the world of literature, so to speak? We do have these awards elsewhere on the African continent. I can give you one big example. Mm. The biggest, um, the, the literature award with the biggest prize money is actually in Nigeria. It's the Nigerian Literary Award. And um, ironically, I'm going to be speaking about the person who, um, in my paper on Saturday, I'm going to be speaking about the person who actually won the 2013 award. Mm. Mm. Um, and it, it's a huge award. I think the total prize money comes to probably uh, more than a, a million rand. Mm. And um, it's, it's an award, for instance, in Nigeria. Um, the author, Tade Ipadiola, mm-hmm. the one who won the award yesterday, wrote a very impressive collection of poetry called Sahara Testaments, mm-hmm. in which he writes a thousand quatrains about, that covers the whole region of the Sahara and all the countries that are in it. So it's a very impressive piece of work. It's recognized in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. I know that in East Africa, the Ugandans have have been very partial to awards in women's writing and women's literature. Mm-hmm. There's a very strong women's literary tradition that, that has emerged in that area. So I think Africa is not doing badly on, on, on these awards. 
but but where we could take it forward is we could have awards that deal with African literature as a whole mm. and not mm. just awards for different parts of the continent. I mean, at the moment, the Kane Prize for African writing is hosted from London and mm. done in London. There is the Commonwealth Literary Awards and there's the Commonwealth Africa Region Literary Awards. But I think we could really move towards Something more continental as opposed to regional. Well, that is uh, the recommendation of Lisa Combrink there, who believes that um, at this time the continent should actually have an own African awards as opposed to just each region having their own also highlighting the uh, literary awards in Nigeria as well. Now, of course, uh, Nigeria also boasts quite a number of well-known artists, I mean, well, writers, so to speak. We can think of the uh, late great Chinua Achebe um, as one. Now, bringing the time now to 23 minutes after 11 here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is African Dialogue, um, and my name is Zikonami. So we're going to move to a short break. Jay and Lisa, please do stay on the line. We'll continue our conversation after this. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And welcome back to African Dialogue here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Ziko Namiso, and we're doing this until the top of the hour. I'm joined on the line by Jay Copland Rose. Prof, uh, I'm also joined by Lisa Combrink, who is the Chief Director of Communications of Departments of Arts and Culture. And also joining us now on the line, we've got the great national poet here in South Africa and, of course, world renowned uh, Professor Kiurapetzi Khotsitsile, who is now joining us on the line. Good morning, Prof and thank you for joining us. Good morning, morning, Zikana. How are you? Well, very well. Thank you, Prof. <laughs> well, Prof, you you haven't missed out on, on, on too much. Lisa, uh, Jay and I were really discussing around the conference in itself and what it really represents for, um, uh, for the world of writing and literature and the likes. Now, Lisa mentioned earlier on that there's really quite a vast uh, 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 interest that has been sparked from the young people um, at the conference. Now, as somebody who is, you know, who's been a writer, somebody who's been in this field of work for a while now. I mean, you some people would not even call it work, <laughs> but they would call it, you know, a passion yeah. or the love of, of, of what you're doing. Can you tell us how important it is to actually have the participation of young people, young and upcoming writers, young and upcoming people who are interested in this sphere of things, joining in at this particular conference? Prof? Yeah, I would say it is actually crucial. Mm. Uh, because among other things, uh, it creates possibilities of uh, continuity. Mm-hmm. You know that the baton is passed on to the younger ones. Mm. Uh, 
but also the exposure to the range of topics and so on mm. and the preoccupations of the African writer in his or her diversity across the continent. Mm. Uh, as you can see, it's not just uh, South Africans who are participating. Mm. And it has a variety of that uh, participants from different parts of the continent, but also the gender and generational representation. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of which I think are very, very important. Mm. Now, we were talking also about um, the South African Literary Awards, which will be awarded to the winners on Saturday um, at the conference. And Lisa was just, you know, making some recommendations in how things can be improved on, talking about there being a need for um, the continent to actually even have their own African Literary Awards, as opposed to each region having their own, or rather countries having their own um, uh, designated um, awards. How do you feel about that recommendation? Prof? Uh, well, I think that uh, each country, each region, and then the continent could mm. have a number of awards that uh, there's no conflict or contradiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, that there can be participation in all the categories. Mm. Uh, and then perhaps, in fact, that way, uh, contribution to the development of literature uh, would be more intensified. Mm. Well, that is Professor Gurapeti Kositile joining us here on African Dialogue today on our discussion as we are, of course, looking at the Africa Century International African Writers Conference, which has kickstarted today and is set to conclude um, in the next three days. Now, Jay, we were talking, I mean, uh, earlier on about uh, the participation of young people and how um, the prof is pleased, you know, that there are, there's an interest from younger people. And he's talking about the baton being handed over that the buck does not stop with them who have done so much in this uh, particular field of things. Now, in in your view, I mean, uh, South Africa, every year they observe uh, what we call National Book Week. And earlier we did have a show where we actually were discussing around this and we had one young guy, Kaya Sibeko, who joined us on the show and he was talking about um, there not really being an interest in books uh, specifically from young people, that they are generally, you know, trying to get the momentum going, but there's not... Not really any interest in reading and that kind of uh, that kind of thing. What's your take on this? Well, you know, reading habits don't just happen like an accident. Mm. They are developed, and if they are not developed uh, from a very early age, chances are they would never be developed. That is why it is important that even in terms of uh, our educational institutions or the schools, 
are that it is important that uh, our children are introduced mm-hmm. to literature as early as possible, to the arts, actually, mm-hmm. generally. But the classroom, the teacher cannot do it alone mm-hmm. in the classroom. The families have to be involved. You know, and this is not just dreaming. I can give an example, like, for instance, uh, let's say, two of my children, Mm -hmm. there is not one teacher who can claim to have taught them how to read and write, Mm -hmm. and I cannot claim that either. But because uh, reading to them, watching the moon, from the earliest possible age, mm. became part of the games they play. Uh-huh. So they learned how to read the way they learned to play any game. So it's um, part and parcel. I don't know what the miracle was, of- but when they started school, they could read and write. Let me let me bring in Professor some of the, the other guests on, on in on this. Jay, um tell us about your what sparked your interest, you know, in the world of writing and reading and that and so forth, and whether you agree with the professor's recommendations around, you know, developing an interest in reading and, and so on and so forth from a young age. Jay? Um, for myself, mm-hmm. uh, my parents are both librarians, so reading came. Uh, actually, it was quite difficult for me to read. Mm. Uh, growing up, I, I didn't develop those skills very quickly. However, mm. um, within my own household, there was a, a lot of force or, or emphasis to try to learn to read eventually. I don't think you um, had a choice. You had librarians uh, for parents, <laughs> so you had people yeah. who were in books. <laughs> I think in terms of South Africa, mm. I mean, this impacts elements of my research because mm. um, a lot of the stuff that I do or have been researching from, say, the apartheid era uh, doesn't have scripts. Mm. Uh, and so there's a lack of, of the physical literary element that I can use to, to study the past. And so I'm only recovering plays and, and dramatic performances mm. um, through descriptions from people. I and mean, then it's held in people's minds and in the memory, mm. but the danger is as people age, these are things that we're going to have less and less access to. Mm. Um, so for myself, I think reading and writing uh, are very integral you know, aspects of, of retaining that memory um, from the past. I realize there are many other ways to, mm. to immortalize or, or contain that memory, um, but as an international researcher, it, it's much more accessible to me if I can find, you know, either publications online or if I have access to digital media, like recordings Mm. um, that I can watch. And so, yeah, I I would certainly support your previous speaker's point Mm. that we need to learn to try to emphasize uh, reading amongst all the youth, Mm. um, both as a method of communication but also as a means of memory. Lisa, your views? Well, I think the the challenge in South Africa today, and maybe not only in South Africa, is that there are forces out there that want to perpetuate us as a singing nation, as a dancing nation, and as a sporting nation. But there are not enough forces out there that want to 
promote us as a reading nation, as a writing nation, as an intellectual nation. So I think we need a far-reaching approach. I think Prof is right. It does start with the family. Mm -hmm. It starts at the home. It moves to the schools. But we also need a general milieu where people want to read newspapers, where they want to read Kindles, where they want to read text, even on their cell phones and by whatever media necessary. We need a kind of environment where on our radio stations, on our television, we ought to be able to see poetry all the time. We ought not to be able to just see blood, gore, violence, Mm -hmm. and so on. So it really needs a different approach. It needs every single um, person in this country to say, what makes me a South African? What is my identity? Am I not a reader? Am I not a writer? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's that kind of almost revolutionary approach that's going to change things from the way they are. Well, and I think that uh, some of the sentiments that are coming through will also, I mean, also adhere to the rest of the continent at large. As you said, that some of these issues are not exclusive to South Africa um, alone. But those were the sentiments of Lisa Combring, Chief Director of Communications at the Department of Arts and Culture here in South Africa. Also joining us on the line, we've got Professor Kiburapesi Khositile, as well as Jay Copland Rose from the Wilfred Orr University in Canada. Bringing the time now almost to 20 minutes before the top of the hour, which means we don't have much time left for our discussion. We're going to move to a short break, but we're going to come back and wrap up after this. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. just gone 20 minutes before the top of the hour here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Zikon Amiso. We're doing this until the top of the hour and we are currently on the frequency 9625 kilohertz. That's on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. Now, of course, today on the show, we are talking around the Africa Century International African Writers Conference, which is set to take place for the next three days here in South Africa, of course, boasting a large um, audience and interest from all authors, literary scholars and historians alike who are going to be in all sorts of dialogue over the next three days around issues that are all encompassing when it comes to the world of writing and of course literature as a whole. Joining me on the line to discuss all the things in, in this regard, we've got Jay Copland Rose, Professor Khosetile Gurabib. Making that mistake. Apologies for that. Also, Lisa Combrink joining us on the line on our discussion today. We don't have much time left, but Prof, I'd just like to ask from you. As I said, um, not too long ago, we did have a program where we were focusing on books and the interest in books just all over the continent and not not exclusively uh, to uh, South Africa. And one of the things that were highlighted about the African author, so to speak, or the African writer, was that um, there seems to be a preoccupation occupation in terms of content with uh, historical anecdotes and that kind of thing. Some of the young people actually complaining 
that uh, they, they, they are finding it difficult to find books that really have relevance uh, with this day and age that they are dealing with now. What are your takes? What's your, your view on that? Mm, I would say that uh, if that is the case, mm-hmm. it would be unfortunate, but also it would be because maybe people have, those young people, Mm. have not developed uh, reading for enjoyment. Mm. You know that they pick up a text looking for certain things. Okay. But if you read for enjoyment, I think you can take on whatever the content is Mm. and still deal with the written matter. Mm. And, yeah. uh, okay. Well, you know, otherwise it would be like saying <laughs> uh, you, are, you cannot go to certain museums or mm-hmm. certain because, or art galleries because you don't like what certain artists are preoccupied with. Mm. What content any artist decides to explore is the business of that artist, not uh, the business of the viewer or the reader. Mm. They are there to critique it or to enjoy it. Well, those are some very interesting sentiments, and I'm sure that uh, some of the, the, the listeners who were listening to that show and are thinking to themselves, maybe they might be thinking twice. Well, if you're listening and you're disagreeing with the prof, you're more than welcome to, of course, send your comments and your questions to plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. Or you can always tweet us. That is on our handle, which is at Channel Africa One, using the hashtag African Dialogue. Now, at this time, I'd just like to give um, all you uh, our guests guests um, an opportunity to just give their closing remarks um, in this regard. I mean, moving forward, conferences like this, what kind of fruits can we see from them uh, in future for the continent at large? I'm going to start with you, Lisa, just in closing as we uh, wrap up. I think through conferences like that, we are able to take debates and dialogues further. We are able to think deeper. Mm. We are able to write better. We are able to express ourselves and we are able to form and strengthen a kind of intra-African solidarity, but also a solidarity with those who are scholars in the African diaspora. And I think most importantly, it's to encourage other people to read and to write. Mm. If a conference, if out of the conference comes one interesting participant who says, tomorrow, I've never written a novel, but tomorrow I will write the first line of this novel, and that will be the first day, in a way, of the rest of my literary life, mm. then I think we would have accomplished a lot. Well, that is Lisa Comrink. They, Jay, your closing remarks? Um, I was going to say, coming out of these conferences, we're going to see much more dialogue. Um, but in addition to dialogue, we're going to have maybe not answers, but possible solutions. Mm. So these conferences become places where you can test their theories, you can model um, options for, for the way to rethink identity in the, in the South African nation, but also in the African nation, like Africa overall. Um, one of the things that always interests me, or I always point out when people ask me why I study South African theater, um, 
I often point out that Canada right now is having their own Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mm. And uh, for a lot of South Africans, that is a very striking thing because they don't realize that there are other nations who are also going over very or going through very similar issues of identity, inclusion, um, and even reconciliation, right, the process of making amends for past grievances. Um, so for myself, I see these, these moments as a great exchange of ideas um, and a way for other nations and scholars from across the world, but also within South Africa, to communicate with each other. Um, I guess another point would be even something like the African Literature Association, which is a very major um, organization that de dedicated sorry, towards African reading and writing, um, is itself going to host its next conference here at BITS University in, in Johannesburg, South Africa. Mm -hmm. So already on the horizon, I can see more dialogue happening, more exchanges of, of thoughts and, and um, models of, of like this reworking. Mm. So, well, over sorry. to you, Prof, as we wrap up. Professor Khosetile? Well, I would endorse uh, what has uh, the closing remarks of the other colleagues. Mm. But I would uh, also add that uh, it is important to see this as a continuation mm. of dialogue and that uh, the solidarity that Lisa made reference to, I think, should begin at the home, mm. you know? And it is pleasing, for instance, to have uh, a younger African writer like Ewande uh, Omotoso, mm. uh, who is fantastic, but who whose work in terms of content also moves between South Africa, the continent, and the diaspora. Mm. And I don't think we've seen much of that. And she does that very skillfully. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but also, I think... If a conference like this does no more than leave us or equip us or contribute to equipping us with uh, how to pose the relevant question, it doesn't have to give answers, mm. but that we know how to think clearly enough to pose the questions we should pose. And identify. I think you would have done a lot. Yes. Well, those are the very wise sentiments coming through there from a national poet in South Africa. And, of course, world-renowned poet Professor Gil Rapetzi Khusitile joining us here on African Dialogue alongside Lisa Combrink, the Chief Director of Communications at the Department of Arts and Culture in South Africa, as well as Jay Copland Rose, Wilfred All University of Canada from the University in Canada. They're also joining in on the discussion and sharing his sentiments and of course bringing a broader um, uh, uh, broader st uh, strength and, and interest into the conversation at large. At this moment I'd just like to thank you our guests for really joining us on the show, being able to give us that clarity and giving us a greater picture of what this conference is all about and what it can do for the continent at large moving forward. Thank you very much for joining us. We do appreciate it. You're very welcome. Well, Thank those you. were our guests joining us here on African Dialogue. My name is Zikon Amiso. We're doing this until the top of the hour. We're going to move to a short break. When we come back, it will be time for our economics update.
This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. tuned into African Dialogue here on Channel Africa and as I promised, it is now time for our economics update with Tabiso Lihugu. South Africa's Labour Union, the National Union of Mine Workers, is currently consulting its members on a revised wage offer from Northern Platinum Mine in Limpopo Province. Chief Negotiator Etlef Fatanzi says that the employer tabled a revised offer on Tuesday. New members went on strike on Sunday to demand a salary increase of $210 for core workers and $200 for non-core workers. They also wanted the 220 a dollar living out allowance increased to 370 US dollars. Noom says the strike is continuing while it seeks a new mandate. South African President Jacob Zuma is in Namibia for a state visit and the inauguration of the binational commission between the two countries. The commission will serve as an important mechanism for the strengthening and enhancement of cooperation between South Africa and Namibia. South Africa is the destination of 66% of Namibia's exports and holds approximately 80% of investments in key sectors of Namibia's economy. These include mining, retail, banking and insurance. Zuma says one of the best mechanisms of achieving intra-African trade is through regional integration and infrastructure development. He was responding to questions in the National Assembly. Zuma says that the African Union has taken a strong position to ensure that it promotes intra-Africa trade. To promote regional integration, work is ongoing to create a tripartite free trade area among the regional economic communities of the common market for Eastern and Southern Africa, the East African community and SADC. The ultimate goal is to establish a single customs union. The three regional economic communities comprise 26 countries, 
a combined population of close to 600 million people and a combined GDP of just under 1 trillion US dollars. Nigeria's second largest bank of by assets, Zenith Bank, says it expects to increase loans to the country's privatized power companies as the government seeks to end blackouts in Africa's biggest oil producer. Loans to the power sector may rise to 10% of the bank's loan book by next year. Nigerian President Goodluck Jonathan has in September handed control of 14 power plants to buyers including Munich-based Siemens AG and Fort Oil to secure funding for the facilities and end daily blackouts in sub-Saharan Africa's second biggest economy. Amnesty International is questioning Royal Dutch Shell's accounting in Nigeria for oil spillments amounts and courses into question, saying the oil company is seeking to avoid compensation payment and damage to its reputation. The Anglo-Dutch oil company responded in a statement that it firmly rejects unsubstantiated accessions that they have exaggerated the impact of crude oil theft and sabotage to distract attention from operational performance. There are hundreds of leaks every year from pipelines that pass through the creeks and swamplands in the Niger Delta, damaging environment and cutting into profits of oil companies including Shell and Italy's Eni. Shell says most of its oil spills are caused by sabotage. Ghanaian Bank, CAL Bank, says the profit growth will be slower next year. As interest rates decline, the shares have dropped for the first time in five days. Net income of the nine months through September more than doubled to $29.8 million. Net interest income, the money banks make from lending, advanced 95%. Yields on Ghana's 91-day treasury bills used by banks in determining lending rates will continue to decline as the government moves toward issuing more long-term debt. The U.S. dollar trades at 10.22 South African rands at 8.52 Botswana Pulas at 5.48 Botswana Pulas, rather Zambian Guachas. It's also trading at 0.62 British pound at 0.74 euro. Looking at commodities market, gold $1,318, platinum $1,454 an ounce, brand crude $105.65 a barrel. Economics update. Thank you, Tabisa, for that economics update. Time now for us to check what's happening in the sporting field with Mushibudi Makura. Thank you, Zikonam. Good day, sports fans. And starting off with soccer news, the Nigerian Football Federation will once again have to borrow money for next weekend's 2014 World Cup playoff against Ethiopia. The NFF needs at least 310,000 US dollars. This will will cover the match bonuses as well as the return ticket fund refunds for the team and also logistical costs. Channel Africa's Tony Obani is in Lagos, Nigeria, and has more on the story. It has always been a problem in Nigerian football when uh, the administrators come up with one prank or the other claiming that there is no money. And of course, the federal government 
who may have gotten uh, with this trick of uh, administration has uh, bluntly refused to release more money to the Federation. They did that as it may. All we know is that on November 16th, they marched against Ethiopia for suit, and Nigeria, with one leg already in Brazil, will definitely be firing from all cylinders. Stephen Ketchy had already invited home-based players to report to Calabar on Monday, talking about the home-based players that will be in camp already on Monday, and then the foreign-based players will also join them before that match will be prosecuted in Calabar. Gordon Negerson, the head coach of the South African senior men's team, will announce his team to play current world champion Spain today. World and European champion Spain will take on South Africa at the FNB Stadium in Johannesburg on the 19th of November. The newly elected president of the South African Football Association, Dr. Danny Jordan, says it is a milestone that Bafana Bafana will be playing the best in the world. Meanwhile, South Africa's Trade Union Federation Congress of South Africa's Trade Unions, COSATU, has appealed to the South African Football Association to call off the upcoming match between Bafana Bafana and Swaziland. This is in line with the Federation's strong support for the cultural boycott of King Mswati III's monarch. The friendly match is scheduled to take place at the Somsolo Stadium in Mbambani, Swaziland, on the 15th of November. COSATU says the, the cancellation of the match on the other hand, will send a powerful message to the regime that the South African sporting community and the people as a whole reject the dictatorship and denial of human rights and democracy in Swaziland. Now on to rugby news, South Africa's Springbok head coach Heine Kamea has no doubt that Sharks lock Peter Stief van Tonder will make his debut off the bench on Saturday against Wells in Cardiff. Mayor believes that it is important for Detroit to uh, rather, uh, Mayor believes that it is important to ease the toys into international rugby, especially if his long-term intention is to play at number five. No, I don't think you can hope for things. You have to put it in place. It's a very, very almost like a catch between two. You either go out there with, with all the experienced players that's been here and, and, and you go out there and win all three games and you're happy. But in the World Cup, you're not well prepared. And uh, the only way you can see how guys perform is in a test match. You can't do it in training. So we're probably going to go the other way. We're definitely going to give guys chances. That doesn't mean we, we underestimate opposition or don't respect them. On to cricket news, J.P. Domini and Faf Duplessis crafted half-centuries as South Africa posted a challenging 259 for the loss of eight wickets against Pakistan in Wednesday's third one-day international to take a 2-1 lead in the five-match day series with two matches to be played. SABC's Natalie Germanos reports. After winning the third ODI by 68 runs, South Africa now found themselves 2-1 up in the five-match series. In last night's match, Faf Duplessis was named man of the match for his 55, that in the end it came off 60 deliveries with eight fours. J.P. Dumini also contributed 64 of 88 balls with three fours, helping South Africa to get to 259 for eight in their 50 overs. In the end, Pakistan were bowled out for 191, with a top score of 33 coming from their number nine batsman, Wahab Riaz. For South Africa, Imran Tahir picked up four for 53 in 10 overs, while Mornay Morkel took two for 35 in nine, and Ryan McLaren picked up two for 31. At one stage, Pakistan were well on course to chase down the target and had already got to 50 inside eight overs. But South Africa turned to Dale Steyn and he ended up picking up the first wicket to fall and he changed the match around, slowing the run rate down and putting pressure on the batsman.
Now, the fourth test will be played on Friday in Abu Dhabi, starting at 1 p.m. Central African time. Well, those are your sports news at this hour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice on the African Renaissance. Thank you to Mr. Budi for that sports update, which does bring us to the end of African Dialogue for this week. Please do make sure to tune in next week from Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. It's time now for Africa Midday with Benjamin Mushadama.